Candy with the double in the seventh inning to bring the Giants to within one run. And then it was Brentley with two men out that doubled down the line in the left field and scored Maldonado to tie the game at four. But then the Astros came back with one in the top of the eighth inning. And so if the Giants are to remain one game back, they're going to have to do something here in the ninth inning. A full count, three and two to Candy Maldonado. Infield pretty much straight away. Outfield slightly to pull and deep. Here's the payoff pitch, the 3-2 pitch. The caddy hit hard and hit well in the field. Back goes Hatcher. He's at the wall. He jumps and it's gone. We're tied. Candy Molinano has hit a home run to tie the game at five. And Will Clark will be the next batter. The game is tied at five. Here is Will Clark. And the first pitch to Will is a curveball inside ball one. Here's the 2-0 pitch in the way, and Clark takes one on the outside corner for a strike and a delayed call by Eric Gregg, and Clark does not like the call. 2-1 pitch in the way. Clark hits it deep to right. Goodbye. See you later. The Giants win it. Upper deck. Oh, he's done it. The Giants come from behind to win it. That was Ron Fairley of KNBR calling the back-to-back -back home runs of Candy Maldonado and Will Clark in the 1987 game between the Houston Astros and the San Francisco Giants. The Giants would give up the National League pennant to St. Louis that year and not win the World Series until 2010 against the Texas Rangers, 56 years after their last series win. Lincoln Mitchell looks back at the Giants baseball team of 1976 to 1992 in his new book, The Giants and Their City. It was a period when the city of San Francisco was going through hard times and their baseball team tended to lose. I'm Rebecca McCain and I'm here with my co-host, Alan Winson. We are sitting with author and political pundit, Lincoln Mitchell. And with us on Zoom is Corey Bush, who worked in the office of George Moscone when the mayor was assassinated in 1978. Mr. Bush then joined the Giants' front office back when the team was owned by Bob Lurie. It's early spring and we're sitting inside Five Napkin in Studio 25, and this is Bar Crawl Radio. Thank you for joining us, uh, Corey Bush and Lincoln Mitchell. We're sitting right off Broadway Corey, where, where are you right now? I'm in, in my home office in uh, San Rafael, just north of San Francisco. And what, what, what's the weather like there? It's nice. It's cooled down a little bit, um, but it's, you know, probably in the 60s, blue. We're hoping to get a little bit of rain in the next coming couple of days. Yeah, California is always about trying to get some rain, some rain going. We, we're, we're cold. We were going to do this outside. Yeah, this is way too cold for April and, 22nd. Uh, and it's really, it's like in the mid-40s right now. Is it really in the 40s? Yeah, yeah. It's, and it's very windy. So Lincoln, you're from San Francisco and have been a lifelong Giants fan, I hear. What is your earliest memory of the Giants? My earliest memory of the Giants, and, and I should say, to I, I became a Giants fan kind of right a few years after the initial departure of Willie Mays, Willie McCovey, the kind of legendary Juan Marshall, the legendary players from the 60s. 
My first memory of the Giants was going to a Giants game at Candlestick Park against the Mets with my friend Zed, uh, with whom I still go to Giants games in San Francisco, and like his mother's boyfriend. This was in the 70s, so you ended up doing a lot of things with like people's mother's boyfriends. And I don't remember much about the game except for that Bobby Bonds hit a home run, and, and Bobby Bonds later got traded to the Yankees and virtually every other team, and he was a great player, and his son went on to become an even greater player. But the caveat to this story is that Zed and I have remained friends to this day, and we'll definitely get to a Giants game this summer. And when he turned 50, which was only a couple of years ago, I went online and I was trying to think of a good gift, and I found an autographed photograph of Bobby Bonds because our first ball game, Bonds had hit a home run, and I brought it to him uh, for his birthday party. I was out in San Francisco, and he had no recollection of why that was significant. <laughs> wow. What does what Zed do? He does a lot of kind of activism and philanthropy, specifically around combating climate change and trying to support groups that are fighting to preserve voting rights. Wow, okay. So, Corey, you, on the other hand, have been a lifelong Los Angeles Dodgers fan, which... Well, I, I, I hate to start off by having to correct you, but I'm not a lifelong Dodger fan. No, I was born and raised in Los Angeles and was a Dodger fan growing up and actually did remain a Dodger fan when I moved to San Francisco in 1971. But I became a Giant fan, a big time Giant fan in 1979 when I went to work for the Giants. Well, that would make somebody, sense. Somebody once said, I, I turned in Dodger blue for Giant green. Uh, what, what, I, I mean, what was that moment when you decided, I'm, I'm no longer a Dodger fan, I'm, I'm now with you guys? Well, it, it was really pretty simple, to be honest. Um, you know, sports is one thing and your sports allegiance uh, are important, but it's like, I, I guess it's kind of, kind of like being a player being traded from one team to another. <laughs> Once I joined the Giants organization, I was a Giant. And when you're a Giant, it's uh, pretty, pretty quickly you learn that you don't like the Dodgers. And of course, the line between love and hate is pretty thin anyway. It was not a difficult transition for me at all. And also, Corey, you grew up rooting, if I could, don't mind me saying, with the, for the Koufax Drysdale Dodgers, right? That's right. Yeah. And those were great yeah, teams I, I, and, and easy to love. And by the time you became went to work for the Giants, it was the Steve Garvey Dodgers, which were a much easier team to hate. Well, that's true. Um, although, you know, if I was still in L.A., I, I, I would have continued to love them, I'm sure. And there were, were some the cool players on that team, like Dusty Baker. But, but yeah, I did. I grew up uh, with the Dodgers of the 60s. Uh, and they had incredible teams, just like the Giants of the 60s. The difference was that the Dodgers finished first a lot, and the Giants finished second a lot. Uh, but yeah, Colfax, Drysdale, Tommy Davis, Willie Davis, Maury Wills, those were the, the players... Um, of my youth as I was growing up in Los Angeles. I worked for the Giants from 1979 through 1992, and then uh, the team was sold following the 92 season. I left, uh, struck out on my own with a, a sports and media consulting business, and uh, went to work for Major League Baseball in 2000 right. as, a, as a consultant to Commissioner Sealing. The Giants have played a a, a very important role in my life. Uh, I still, there's still a part of me uh, that remembers uh, the, the thrills of being a Dodger fan, but I am a Giants fan. Um, my second favorite team is anybody playing the Dodgers. <laughs> Corey, you were working for uh, the San Francisco Mayor George Moscone before you joined the Giants, am I right? That's right, yeah, I went, uh -huh. I went to work for George Moscone when 
he was the uh, Senate Majority Leader in the California State Senate, and then I served for a couple of years as his press secretary uh, when he became mayor. You were there during that awful moment when uh, he and Harvey Milk were assassinated. Uh, that must have been a, just a, a terrible time, a tragic part of San Francisco history. Um, well, it was a horrible time. I, I was not in San Francisco that, that day, fortunately. Um, but yeah, it was it was a pretty horrible time, and I can't remember uh, too many times in my life that were that were more difficult than than that. Yeah, and one of the things that we wanted to talk about is how the city changed because uh, Lincoln, your book had a lot to do with that change that happened in San Francisco over the period that that you wrote about. Lincoln, your fascination with your hometown has been a theme in all your in, in the books that I've been reading. I think you have three of them out now on on baseball. And I hear that you, your next one is going to be on Moscone, is that yes. right? Yes. Right. So what draws you to San Francisco, besides the fact that you grew up there, as a topic to write about? What is the fascination? You know, we're sitting here on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. And I moved back here. I was actually born in New York City. I moved back here in 1990 because uh, neither UC Berkeley or Stanford had the wisdom to let me into their PhD program. So I had to go uh, to Columbia instead, or I chose was able to go to Columbia instead. And I remember coming here in 1990, 1991. I'd been here for about a year, and I was it was one. I was election day. I'd voted uptown uh, in my city council race, and I was downtown on the west side with some friends hanging out, and everyone started celebrating in the neighborhood. And the reason was Tom Duane had won, I guess, the primary and would be the first uh, gay out gay man in the New York City Council. And I said to myself, How the hell did I get to such a right wing town? that it took until 1991 to elect a gay person to the city council. And I was constantly this kind of dissonance. When I, as I got involved in politics in New York, I remember having a conversation with a district leader here on the west side in 1997. I was running a C. Virginia Fields campaign for borough president, and she started lecturing me on how progressive the Upper West Side was. And, you know, in fairness, I'm a, my grandparents, I mean, my mother was a red diaper baby on the Upper West Side in the 50s. I know about that politics. But I said, you know, this is the most right-wing neighborhood I've ever lived in. And it was like I'd, it was like I'd done something, like I'd violently hurt her or something. But, and I realized, like, I grew up in San Francisco. I went to UC Santa Cruz. And so, so my fascination with San Francisco, one, how did this city, which in 1960 was a lot like most cities, become so different than other cities? How did it take this sharp left turn? And I know what everyone says about San Francisco now, but when the rubber meets the road, it still is a very progressive place. And then how did that form my intellectual outlook? And then another subtext of that for me is I'm of this generation in San Francisco. I mean, Corey grew up having to, to watch not one, but two Hall of Fame pitchers take the mound for the Dodgers in their regular starting rotation. I grew up having to watch ground balls go through Johnny LeMaster's legs at Candlestick Park, right? Corey uh, will tell you, uh, in, in, in great detail, like he saw the Beatles perform, right? He was at the Monterey Pops Festival. And I also now in San Francisco, the 60s lasted well into the 1980s. So, you know, I saw the Grateful Dead more times than I can count, or I lost count after about 50. Good I saw you. Country Joe McDonald. I saw, you know, in various component parts of the Jefferson Airplane, all those bands. But they were, you know, not quite my mother's generation, but at least half a generation older than me. And the culture of that time for me was punk rock and, and the Dead Kennedys and, and the Avengers and bands like that. And so I was fascinated by this moment in San Francisco history 
On the baseball side, I sometimes refer to it as between the bonzes. After they traded Bobby Bonds, I know this is getting into the weeds here, before they traded Barry. But, you know, being told, growing up in San Francisco, being told as a young person, it's too bad you never saw Willie Mays play, which it is, and it's too bad you missed the Summer of Love, and I have a very good excuse. I wasn't born until December of 1967. So this renaissance in San Francisco today, economically, I grew up in a city with massive joblessness, with a higher crime rate most years than New York. And try to kind of recenter that period and that story as a way to understand San Francisco today, and to some extent, urban America of today. So that's how I, I get to this fascination. Okay, okay. Well, uh, but you covered in this book, the Giants and their city, Major League Baseball in San Francisco, 1976 to 1992. Right. Uh, so it's, it's that period. And I, I think it's important to say why that period because the Giants weren't necessarily doing that well throughout that entire period. Right. Well, when, when in fact you, Corey, were working for them. I'm sure it wasn't your fault. Uh, partially. <laughs> <laughs> I have to take my share of the blame. So why, why this period? Lincoln? Well, there's two reasons, really. One was, there's two things that, that, that I think that capture this period. One was, this was a period when Bob Lurie uh, owned the team for the entire time. And Bob Lurie is this hugely important figure in the history of the Giants as a franchise. I wanted to tell the story of his time owning the team at this tumultuous period for baseball, for the Giants. There were some very, very bad teams and some very, very good teams. And this period that gets, again, gets forgotten. But the real other reason was this. This story begins, everyone listening should buy the book anyway, but I'll do a little bit of a spoiler here. It begins with not quoting the San Francisco papers, but the Toronto papers. Because in January 76, it was a done deal. The Giants were sold and gone to Toronto. And the day before we mentioned, the Corey mentioned that he worked for George Moscone, the day before Moscone is sworn in, the Toronto papers are reporting, we have Major League Baseball. Not we might get it, we have it. The San Francisco papers are reporting Giants are gone. The, the, the Toronto papers are saying, well, the Giants will be in the National League East and maybe they can finish in third place. Philadelphia and Pittsburgh are very good, but we have a real shot. Who will be the manager? How much will ticket price? I mean, literally, how much will ticket prices be? And their story begins with this new mayor who comes in a very, very competitive race and a very progressive agenda and goals for the city. And he's going to lose the Giants, which is no way to get reelected, right? And this, this scramble over several months where Bob Lurie... Uh, immediately kind of steps up and says, I'm in for half of this, if, if we can find a way, and Lurie commits to keeping the team in the city. And so that's the story that begins it, and it ends in 1992, where after 16, 17 years of trying, and the whole problem was the ballpark of Candlestick Park, trying to find a home for the Giants. And we'll, we'll, we'll get to Candlestick we'll get Park. To this, so twice they go before the voters in San Francisco. Twice they get rejected. Twice they go before the voters in Santa Clara County, down the peninsula. Twice they get rejected. And the team is clearly cannot have, a, it looks at the time, a future home in San Francisco. And again, it's a done deal. They're sold to Tampa, a new mayor, a new scramble, and they, and they, and they stay. And after 1992, the Giants have never talked about leaving San Francisco. So there was this period where if you were a baseball fan in the 80s, a Giants fan, you know, in the, in the offseason, you'd read the, the sporting news. There was no internet. You'd read the sporting news, the San Francisco Chronicle. You'd listen to KMBR, which was kind of the radio station that covered the Giants carry the Giants games and you'd 
on the one hand, you know, are they going to trade for a good, whatever, a good outfielder? Can we get a new catcher? Whatever it was. And on the other hand, where are we playing next year? So that, I wanted to kind of capture that period. The story of the team and the city is really a big part of your book, The Giants and Their City. Uh, I'll, I'll pitch it again. We'll, we'll keep pitching it throughout this, this podcast. Uh, Corey, you went to work for this guy we've mentioned already named Bob Laurie. At the time, he bought the Giants from Horace Stoneham, who had, uh, was just about to sell, as, as Lincoln said, the team to the Canadian Labatt Brewing Company, right? This beer company. We, uh, and they were going to move to Toronto. But Moscone stopped it. We, we just got that story from Lincoln. Uh, my question to you is, who was Bob Laurie? Who is Bob Laurie? Who is Bob Laurie? Sorry, because yeah. he, you did interview him in yes, the book. Yes, he's still, he, we just did an event together online. Bob Laurie is a native San Franciscan who was, was obviously born and, and reared in San Francisco. His father was a major civic uh, leader, a real estate developer who was way back then when San Francisco was still a growing city, was very much involved in that. And Bob grew up uh, loving his native city and grew up loving baseball. And he served on the board of the National Exhibition Company, which was the company that owned the Giants uh, at that time. It was controlled by Horace Stoneham. And the Giants had only been in San Francisco 17 or 18 years when Stoneham uh, had run out of money. The franchise was really moribund by 1975. And uh, when it became clear that the team was going to be sold, Bob, on two levels, uh, was committed to stopping that. One level was because of his love for San Francisco. And he believed that a part of what makes a great city a great city, the quality of life, has to revol also revolves around sports. So he wanted to do that for the city. And it it was a dream of his um, to be involved in Major League Baseball, and he was fortunate to have the financial wherewithal to be able to do that. So he immediately stepped forward and, and said to Mayor Moscone, I will put up half the money that it will take to buy the team to keep them in San Francisco. Let's work together to see if we can find someone who will put up the other half. And, and that's what they did. It wasn't easy during this period, throughout this entire period, from 76 to 92, it wasn't clear that San Francisco would stay, that the Giants would stay in San Francisco. Could you talk a little bit about that struggle? Because you were involved with it in keeping- you No, know, I was, I was very were. involved in it. Yeah. There, there, were two, there were two struggles that, that we faced during those years. As I mentioned before, when Bob took control of the club and bought the team in 1976, the franchise was moribund. I mean, they traded Willie Mays a few years earlier um, for a little known player and cash because they needed the cash to make their payroll. They were operating on money borrowed from the National League. And uh, not long before Bob bought the club, the National League installed uh, their own general manager to run the team um, to protect their investment. So uh, the, the franchise uh, was more abundant. The organization had been stripped of virtually all of its uh, young talent, young players, and was in really desperate straits. Part of the problem was the ballpark. Uh, opened to much fanfare in 1960, uh, Candlestick Park uh, quickly became known as probably the worst facility in Major League Baseball. Oh, wow. 
and was yeah. a tremendous. Why is that? Why is that? Yeah. A number of reasons. The, the most famous reason of all is the weather. The weather was notorious uh, at the location. It was built on a, a, an area called Candlestick Point on the southeast corner of the city. And not only was it a bad location from the terms of access, difficult for people to get to, uh, the weather was horrible. Uh, it was built next to a hill that created these wind venturies. And every afternoon about 4 or 4.30, the howling winds came in which made it incredibly cold and uncomfortable for fans and made it very difficult on players. Players did not like playing there, neither the visiting club nor the giant players themselves. So it, it, the, right away, the ballpark uh, became a real inhibitor to, to the success of the franchise. And uh, what we needed to do during the years that Bob owned the club was number one, put the organization back on a sound footing from a baseball standpoint. And I guess, uh, you know, if there's anything that those of us who were, who were involved in those years can be proud of, it's the fact that we did accomplish that. Toward the end of Bob's ownership, we, we won a National League West championship, we won a National League pennant, went to the World Series, created an organization that I think really was the foundation for the success uh, that was, was built upon that in later years. Uh, but it was a very difficult period of time. We never believed ourselves the team was going to leave. All we knew was the team was not going to be able to sustain in Candlestick Park. There had to be a new ballpark. And absent a new ballpark, we believed the reality was the team would eventually have to leave San Francisco. We never wanted to see that happen. We never really believed it would, and fortunately it didn't. But that, that, that cloud hung over the franchise during that entire period. So, and thank goodness it worked out. Lincoln, you describe San Francisco as a quirky, unconventional, fun-loving city where people have a complex relationship with traditions and conventions. So where did baseball fit in the San Francisco culture? San Francisco is, has been a great baseball town for a very long time. Uh, going back to you know the early 20th, late 19th century when baseball was, was popular everywhere. Um, it, the term Sandlot, which we hear, you know, all the time, is Sandlot Ball. That originated in San Francisco, according to many. And I, the, I, did, I and, didn't know that. And the, the reason is the western half of San Francisco is basically built on sand. And when I was growing up playing baseball in San Francisco, in the Sandlots, you'd be out in, I don't know, Golden Gate Park or even Rossi Park or somewhere like that, a uh, big wreck, and you'd be playing. I used to, I was an infielder, so I was playing first base. And, or when you come into bat, and you know, you're standing on sand. <laughs> like, it's sand underneath your feet. It slows down the ground ball. It's a different kind of a hole in the batter's box. So it had a very strong baseball tradition. Uh, the San Francisco Seals, which were the team, the Pacific Coast League team, which was somewhere between a minor league and a third major league team for the first half of the 20th century, were the Yankees of the, they were the Yankees of the PCL. They were the best team. Uh, among And the Pacific Coast League had some great players. I mean, Ted Williams... Paul Wehner, Harry Heilman, but from the, to the Seals' perspective, uh, all three DiMaggio brothers played for the Seals, most notably Joe DiMaggio. And the manager of the Seals for many years towards the end was a guy named Lefty O'Doul, who batted 349 in the major leagues, but kept going back and forth between the New York Giants, oddly, ironically, and the PCL San Francisco Seals, and was one of the main figures in bringing baseball to Japan. So it's a great, great baseball city. 
when I was growing up, going to ball games uh, in the 70s, when, when, when uh, Corey was working for the Giants, and a little bit before then, actually, you know, you'd be at the ball game, and some older dude behind me would really make a point of explaining to me the history. Like, we had big league baseball before the Giants. The San Franciscans thought of the Seals as, as big league baseball. And some of those Seals teams were better than, you know, half the teams in the big leagues in any given year. What happened was the Giants got there. They almost came within one run of winning the 1962 World Series. And then a couple things happened. Candlestick Park, no longer the, the newest, most exciting ballpark, but this cold, dreadful place to watch a baseball game. The team keeps finishing in second. And then all of the kind of social upheaval of of the 60s and 70s, which happened in San Francisco to a much greater extent than other cities, and the, a lot of new people coming in, and the kind of new people coming in, baseball was associated with the world they were leaving behind. So I've talked to a lot of people over the years who said, not people like Corey, who were you know just intense fans and, and never really left that, as far as I, I am my understanding, but people who, I talked to one guy who said, you know, I spent 20 years not being a baseball fan, and I went back to Candlestick Park, and I thought, why did I wait so long? even to go to Candlestick Park. And the Giants at that time, they were something that happened in a part of the city that if you didn't live there, you didn't go too much. The weather was terrible. Ironically, uh, one of the places the Giants had explored playing when they moved to San Francisco, they never played there, was Kizar uh, Stadium, which is where the 49ers played up until the 1970 season, which is right, if you know anything about the geography of San Francisco, right where Haight Street meets Golden Gate Park. So there was, in, in an alternate universe, Willie Mays is playing center field a block off from Hate Street in the summer of love. But we never got that alternate universe. You were there at a night game? At Candlestick, I was there more night games than I can ever count, yes. Describe, like, how many layers of clothes did you have Okay, on? so so I'll say this. So when I was in growing up in San Francisco, my, my family's from New York. And during winter break uh, from school all the way through high school, I always come to New York, this is December now, to visit my grandparents, uh, my aunt my uncle, my cousins, a close you know, family. And I would dress for winter in New York the way I would dress for a night game at Candlestick Park. That is not an exaggeration. And I would be cold. I mean, it was, it was, and it was, and the wind made you cold, but it also made like, as a fan, now I don't have to, I'm a fan. I'm just going there uh, watching a baseball game. I'm too young to have a beer, but I'm having a hot dog, whatever. I'm not trying to hit a 95 mile an hour fastball. And I still can't see because I got peanut shells in my eyes and dust and dirt. You'd, people, I used to do this too, you'd go up to the upper deck and people would like just throw shit over the upper, throw stuff off the upper deck to watch it whirl around like a dervish in the outfield behind home plate. It was just nuts. I mean, and, and, and it lent this atmosphere to the place that was very kind of, we used to joke. I mean, at one point, uh, the Giants this year, you know, they have a policy. Well, well, they have a policy that, that this year, because of COVID, they're only playing at 20% capacity. Last year, they played in, no, in front of no fans. But it's like, if you played for the Giants in the 70s, you were used to that. I mean, it was just it was, it was a, a wild scene, but it, there was, to sit, you had to love baseball to go to Candlestick Park. Did you love Candlestick Park? I knew it was a terrible ballpark, but it was, I probably spent more time in that building than any building in San Francisco other than my home or the two schools I attended growing up. So it was a big, it was a big part of me. And, and the other thing is this, if you went to a day game, it was, weather was great. So if you could go on it now, now the thing was this, if you went to a day game and you sat in the sun, it was great. As soon as you got in the shade, the temperature could drop 10 or 15 degrees in an inning. So what I always did, partially out of a, a, a budgetary issue, was I always sat on the upper deck 
in the area that wouldn't get the shade. And then I could have been, unless I went into extra innings or something. But part of the problem was the good seats, once they got in the shade, were, were terrible. So it was, uh, but, but, if, but if you look at footage of like a Sunday game there in the 70s, it looks fantastic. Wow, 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 thank you. I, I love that image of throwing the peanut shells up in the air and right. watching watch. them tornado around, yeah. right? Corey, you, um, you were in, in partially, I guess, in charge of making sure that Candlestick Park had fans and there were some strategies that came up to bring the fans in. One was the qua of candlestick, and the other was the crazy crab. Did you come up with those ideas, and what were they? No, no, I didn't come up with those ideas. The marketing department in those days, which was challenged every day to come up with some idea uh, to try to attract fans, was led by a man named Pat Gallagher. And we had a couple of, of people uh, from from the outside, uh, most specifically a man named John Crawford. And they came up with these ideas to try to get people's attention. Uh, the Quadra Candlestick being one, Crazy Crab being another. The Quadra Candlestick was a, a pin that you would get if you were hardy enough to stay to the end of an extra inning game at Candlestick Park. So every time the Giants played an extra inning game, uh, those who stayed, got this little pin that bought a candlestick. And how often did uh, that happen? Oh, I don't know, 15 times a year maybe. I, I, I don't know how many extra inning games would be normal during the course of the season. Uh, but what happened was after, after the first quad of candlestick, Mike Kruko, who was a pitcher for the Giants in those days and is now uh, on, uh, does a television broadcast with Dwayne Kuyper, Mike Kruko walked out onto the field the next day and he had the quad of candlestick attached to his hat. And once the players embraced it and the fans saw that, it became very coveted. Um, I don't think it brought any extra people in, frankly, uh, but it, it did draw some attention and you're always fighting for attention uh, when you're in the entertainment business and you're trying to sell tickets. Crazy Crab, again, was the idea that a mascot would not be very well received in San Francisco. The San Francisco is not a mascot kind of town. So we uh, came up, uh, the, the marketing department came up with the idea of the anti-mascot, somebody that would come out, a mascot would come out on the field and be so obnoxious and annoying that people <laughs> would boo it and throw stuff at it. And that's kind of what happened. And the problem was it got a little bit out of hand. So we didn't bring him back after the, after the first season. Um, but, you know, it, it, we were challenged, as Bob Lurie, I think, quoted in Lincoln's book saying, we were desperate. We had to come up with anything we could to try to uh, to get people to come out to the ballpark. Okay, Corey, you opened a door here. How exactly did it get out of hand with the crab? Oh, well, the crab would come out and he'd do his shtick and the people would brew and, you know, they'd throw hot dog wrappers at him and, and things like that. And they basically would boo him off the field uh, every time he came on during the course of a game. During that off season, uh, after the crazy crab, um, we, we were pretty coy about whether or not he was going to come back. And so to, to keep some attention on the club during the off season, we'd have the crazy crab go on radio and complain and whine that he wasn't <laughs> sure he was coming back and he really wanted to come back and all the rest of it. And then we couldn't quite decide how we were going to let fans know that crazy crab wasn't coming back. Somebody had the idea of on opening day, handing out little, just unannounced, handing out little crab cocktails to people. 
as our way of saying crazy crap is gone. Uh, <laughs> Lincoln, but we, we didn't go that far. We just finally let people know that uh, that was the end of the crap. Lincoln, do you remember the crazy crap? Deal. Oh, do I remember the crazy crap? Of course I remember the crazy crap. I was in high school. What did he sound like? I'm not going to... So the crazy crap would come out around the fifth inning, and there would be this inane song that would come on. Horrible, yeah, do, do, horrible do, 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 Love that crazy crap. And it was just... <laughs> it was absurd. But the thing is, like, two things you have to remember. One, unless you keep... So for our listeners who are orthodox and keep kosher, this doesn't apply to you, but for the rest of the listeners... The crab is like a local delicacy in San Francisco, right? People love crab. You can have it in Chapino. You go to the Vietnamese place in the sunset of the Richmond. You go down to the wharf. It's delicious, right? So it is part of the culture. And the second thing is it was really the, the crab, the qua, and Guido Sarducci doing the ads on the radio. Father Sarducci. Father Guido Sarducci were, yeah. were the, the, the giants understanding that they were in a different kind of city, Right. And, and that was, I think that helped build a bond. You know, no other team, every other team was do was, try, was like mascots are ridiculous. They are ridiculous. Whether it's the Philly Fanatic or the San Diego Chicken or whatever. So we just embraced like, okay, no one likes mascots. Real baseball fans want baseball, not mascots. That's right, right. No cheerleaders. Right, right, it's baseball. <laughs> right. No, but Lincoln, Lincoln, makes, Lincoln makes an important point. And that is that you know, it's not all about winning all the time. It's not always all about the venue. Those are important. But a, a team has to connect with its fan base. It has to connect with the community. And in order to do that, you have to understand the community. And uh, we, we felt we had a pretty good understanding. And so the idea of the anti-mascot, the idea of the quad to candlestick, all sort of played into what we, we thought were San Franciscans uh, perceptions of themselves as being different, not being cut from the same cloth as as people who lived in other cities around the country. And we recognize that. We tried to incorporate that in the way we presented the team. Your book is has a lot of details in it, and that's great for people who like details, but it also has great baseball stories about, about the Giants. Kevin Mitchell's barehanded catch while Willie Mays was coaching him. Um, and Dave Dravecki's, um the, the star Giants pitcher. Could you tell one of those stories? I, I love the story about Dravecki. That That's just an amazing event. I'll, I'll tell There's a lot of stories there. And, and, and the challenge of writing a baseball book, which anyone who reads a baseball book knows, is that people want baseball stories. Baseball fans want baseball stories. And without that, it doesn't mean anything. And also, if you write a book and you say that on July 3rd of 19... 19- 84 this happened in the fifth inning when it really happened in the sixth inning you will get people attacking you on social media and things like that so the details really matter in in a in a book like this um the dave dravecki story is really kind of an extraordinary story dravecki was a rookie with the san diego padres in 1982 by the mid 80s had emerged as you know not one of the best but one of one tier down left-handed pitchers and there's always left-handed pitchers are always at a premium in the National League. 83, 84, 85, the Giants are just terrible. They begin to turn around late 85, but really in 86, and 87, they're in a pennant race to win that division. They've not been to the playoffs till 1971, and the guy who's been running the team, uh, the general manager since late 85, is a guy named Al Rosen, who uh, had been a very gr- good player with the Cleveland Indians, a very successful executive, and, uh, as, and uh, with the Yankees and the Indians, or the Astros, 
and he's running the team. And midway through the season, when the Giants have a shot at making the playoffs, he makes what can only be described as a major blockbuster trade with the Padres that brings in Craig Lefferts, Dave Dravecki, and Kevin Mitchell. And when I asked Dave Dravecki about that trade, I said, you know, how did it feel to be traded for the Giants like Corey was traded to the Giants? And he said, and he said, well, the main thing we had to do was to convince Kevin Mitchell that it was okay because Mitchell had grown up in San Diego, really liked playing for the Padres, and didn't want to come to the Giants. Turns out that Kevin Mitchell was an amazing player for the San Francisco Giants. But Trevecki comes up, pitches really well down the stretch in 87, and the 87 playoffs just has two almost single-handedly, him and Jeffrey Leonard almost single-handedly win that series for the Giants. They narrowly lose. And then during the 88 season, he starts encountering arm problems. And this is common. All pitchers almost encounter arm problems. But this is something more serious. And turns out he has cancer in his left arm. He's a left-handed pitcher. And he doesn't know if he'll ever, he's told he'll never pitch again. David Reckie, a very devout Christian, uh, is told he'll never pitch again. You know, through his own power of faith and all of this, he begins to make a comeback. And in 89, he comes all the way back and he has a game in San Francisco where he's pitching, and he's pitching, and he pitches fine. And he says to me, when I talked to him, he said, I thought I'm back in the rotation. And he's cruising along through four or five innings, throwing a shutout ball, and then he walks somebody, hits somebody, gives up a home run, and then on the, he says, I throw the ball, and the next thing I know, I'm lying on the ground, and Will Clark, the great, great Giants first baseman, has run over, and he's telling him basically, just breathe. You're gonna be okay, just breathe. And that's how bad it was, the, the agony. He'd broken his arm. The, the bone was weak because of the cancer and he'd actually broken his arm by pitching. And uh, eventually- and, and the story is there was a, a, a huge crack that yeah, was hurt. Yeah, oh yeah, people hurt in the ballpark. And eventually he had to have much of his left arm and shoulder amputated. Wow. And he's, he's still, you know, he's around uh, uh, still. And but then let me, let me just add to that as well that the game, the first game he pitched when he came back was in September at home. It was a day game against Cincinnati Reds, and we were in a pennant race, and it was a really important game. It was a game that we, we needed to win. And not only was Dave's return very emotional and anticipated by the fans, but he went out there and he pitched a great game. I think he went seven innings or so. So he not only came back um, after basically being told his career was over. He pitched a great game and won a very important game for us down the stretch. And then as Lincoln said, we lost him not that long later uh, when, uh, when he had that incident in Montreal and he did have his arm, had to, had to be amputated after that. We should clarify, when you said we lost him, we lost him as a player, he's still alive. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. He's very much alive and very involved today in the Giants organization. Corey, do you have any baseball stories from that period? Oh, I wouldn't even know where to begin. Uh, Pick out one. There, 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 no, there are so many stories, um, some of which are very personal in terms of experiences that, that I was fortunate to have. Uh, you know, clearly what it's all about when you're when you work for a major league team, it's about winning championships. And um, I can tell you that when, when we won the... Uh, the National League West in 1987 and went into the playoffs, um, it was a very, very surrealistic time. And then two years later, 
uh, winning again in 89 and playing the Cubs, probably one of the most memorable moments uh, for most Giants fans was in game one of the league championship series against Chicago, uh, playing in Wrigley Field late in the game. And Will Clark comes up and it's a home run off of Greg Maddox to give us a commanding lead. We went on to win that series. That was, that was phenomenal. But interaction with the players, uh, the Giants have always done a terrific job of keeping their alumni close. Uh, you know, guys' names that Lincoln had mentioned before, you know, the Marshalls and the Cubbies, Cepeda, Mays. Being able to get to know people like that, to learn about the game from the greatest who ever played it, uh, those are memories and experiences that, that I had because of my role with the Giants that will stay with me a lifetime and that I, I love passing along to people because it's just, it's just so wonderful for fans. Thank you. Thank, thanks for sharing that. Before we finish up, we have a few more questions. We really should talk about the third game of the 1989 World Series against the Oakland A's. The series was called the Battle of the Bays. The Giants had lost the first two games to Oakland. We're in Candlestick Park was full at the, uh, the third game. And then at 5.04 p.m. on October 18th. 17th. 17th, it was 17th. Yeah. So tell us, Lincoln, what happened? Well, so Giants win. The, uh, Corey had, had talked about Will Clark hitting uh, single-handedly beating Greg Maddox in game one. He also got the big hit in game five that gets the Giants back to the World Series. So they go back to the World Series, and, and um, they were against a very, very good Oakland A's team, which, how to say this uh, diplomatically, um, and there's reason to believe they were in the early stage of a chemical enhancement program, uh-huh. I think we could say. But nonetheless, uh-huh. but maybe not, not unrelated to that, a very good team. And so there was a sense as a fan that we made it back to the World Series. I don't know how we're going to beat these guys. And then they had some players who were clearly not chemically enhanced who were just among the very greatest ever played the game, like Ricky Anderson. So they lose the first two in Oakland. They come back to San Francisco. It's the first game played in that ballpark since a uh, World Series game since 1962. And a few minutes before the game is about to start, the thing that, that, you know, in every non-San Franciscan's vision of San Francisco happens, happens, which is an earthquake. Ballpark a big start, earthquake. A big earthquake. The ballpark shakes. And we zoom into Candlestick Park in the southeastern corner of the city for the first time in 27 years. A World Series game will be played in Candlestick Park. The Battle of the Bay continues. Game three of the 1989 World Series, the Oakland Athletics against the San Francisco Giants. Welcome to game three. It's been dominant Oakland pitching, of course, in the first two games. So Roger Craig has made some changes in the Giants' lineup. The Giants, of course, are faced with a formidable task, having to win four or five, in essence, to win the world title. Let me turn now to Tim McCarver. You know, Tim, we talked in game one. The final score was 5 nothing, but there was a... And he fails to get Dave Parker at second base. So the Oakland A's take... Take... I'm saying, well, we have an earth... Yes, we hear you. I guess I don't even think. Well, folks, that's the greatest open in the history of television. Bar none. <laughs> yes, it certainly did. We're still here. 
We are just as we can tell on the air, and I guess you are hearing us, even though we have no picture and no return audio. And we will now, fortunately, the fans there were from both Oakland and San Francisco, so they knew from earthquakes. There was not a lot of panic. Bob Lurie, because as Corey described him, is a lifelong San Franciscan, so has the attitude of a San Franciscan of, oh, it's an earthquake. We can play through this. <laughs> he told me, he told Al Michaels, oh, I'm sure we'll play, because that's the, that's like only a San Franciscan, or I guess a California would understand why you would say that. We've been through this a hundred times. It's never really the big one. The mayor at that time, a guy named Art Agnos, told me that he kind of thought we were going to play too, and then a, uh, a police, you know, one of the police detail comes up to him and says, you know, the Bay Bridge has fallen in. <laughs> And now it's the big one. So there's all of these. The players are, you know, where's my kids, my wife? My Kevin Mitchell says, to me, where's my gra- where'd my grandparents? Dusty Baker, who was a great player, coach, and manager, but at that time a coach for the team, he says, this was one of the most memorable days of my life, and he remembered the actual snack he was having in the, in the clubhouse oh. before the game because he wanted to eat something before the, the game. And, and eventually, you know, everyone goes home, and they don't play for 10 days, and... The most amazing thing about this, which people don't always know, is that no one was badly hurt in Candlestick Park. This ballpark, which we joke about and which we criticized and hated, and the Giants, there was a bowel initiative to get out of the, you know, build a new ballpark. That, a few weeks later, it was its finest moment. Nobody was hurt. Everything was okay at Candlestick. But the, uh, the World Series was delayed. And eventually, due to uh, some intervention on the, behalf of, um, on the part of Bob Lurie, Specifically, they did resume the, the World Series in Candlestick Park, both teams, and unfortunately, uh, the A's uh, won the next two games. Uh, Corey, you were there then. What was your reaction to the earthquake? Well, I had just gone upstairs. Um, I'd been on the field pregame, and I had just gone upstairs to, to my suite because the next scheduled part of the pregame ceremony was we were going to raise the National League pennant. And I had guests and family up there um, that I that I wanted to be with. And it, Candlestick Park is two levels, and the luxury suites are at the bottom of the second level. And as the earthquake started to occur, we all knew what it was, because as Lincoln says, as, as Californians, we know earthquakes. And the building was full. There were 60-plus thousand people in it. And as I looked out, I saw two things. Number one, the light towers were swinging like metronomes. I'd never seen anything like it in my life. And secondly, the upper deck was actually rippled. And it's not a cantilever construction. The upper deck is supported by these poles. There was nowhere to go. And I really actually thought we were doomed. I thought the upper deck hat was, was bound to collapse because of all the weight being full of people. And it would collapse on top of all the people in the lower deck. Um, so there was this moment of just the uh, terror of what was going to happen. It also lasted a long time um, by earthquake standards. It lasted, I think, a minute. And that's a really long time when you're scared out of your skin. Uh, but then it ended. And nobody knew, as Lincoln said, nobody knew the extent of the damage yet. I then started to make my way back down to the field. I was going through the stands. And that's when I heard the Bay Bridge portion of the Bay Bridge had collapsed. And that's, that's, at that point, it was clear we weren't going to be playing baseball. Um, and, you know, it was very orderly. Um, people didn't panic. Nobody raced for the exits. A lot of people stayed, hoping there'd be a game. 
as word got around as to the extent of the damage, the Bay Bridge, the fires in the Marina District, and it became evident this was a major earthquake, uh, people began to leave. But we were fortunate. Nobody was hurt. Uh, the stadium, the damage to the stadium was, wasn't too extent, uh, extensive. But the 10 days in between the earthquake and the resumption of the World Series, um, I'm going to use to tease people to buy the book and read the book because um, those were very interesting 10 days. And the dynamic between the then commissioner, Faye Vincent, Art Agnos, Bob Lurie, ABC, which was the network televising the World Series, the pressures to get it going again, the notion that maybe it should be resumed outside of the Bay Area. Great story. And Lincoln tells it very well in the book. And I'm not going to tell it. It is a great story. I, it opened my eyes up about I was going like, well, why don't they just play in a different city? You know, what's the big deal? But it was huge, huge for San Francisco to, yes. to be there. Yeah, it been 27 years. Now, a lot of San Franciscans didn't care, but there was a loyal, real loyal core. I mean, if you made it as a Giants fan through the 70s and the early 80s, it's about as loyal a fan as you can get. And, you know, 27 years is a long time. The Giants, because they're out there in a different time zone, from the main media markets. And because they had so many good players for so long, people don't realize how long it would have been. When the Giants finally won the World Series in 2010, many baseball fans didn't realize it had been since 1954 because they just assumed they must have won a couple World Series when they had Mays, McCovey, and Marichal. But it was... And then the earthquake, you know, it was this, it was this kind of... San Francisco every now and then has these moments where events come together and there's this heightened sense of awareness about everything. And October, November of 1989 was one of those moments. So congratulations to Candlestick Park for sticking it out, and they did finish up the World Series. Read the Giants and the, their cities to, to get more of that story. Lincoln, uh, you write at the end of your book uh, that 1976-1992 established the unique characteristics of the Giants baseball team as a part of their city. Now, you've referred to that in a bit in this uh, conversation. Um, how are the Giants at the end of the last century reflected in the successful Giants today? Well, as a fan, the most important part of that is that they're still in San Francisco, which, you know, in January 1976 was not a given. In fall of 92 was not a given at many points along the way. So that's one thing. The second thing is that I think by any measure, either quantitative or anecdotal or qualitative, the Giants are the marquee franchise of the Bay Area even when the Warriors have been so good, and not this year in particular, but so good in recent years. When you go around the Bay Area, it is Giants, you know, sweatshirts and ball caps that you see. It is when the Giants win the World Series, which they've done, you know, three times now, which is extraordinary. That is what generates the most excitement. They, and, and that was not true in the early, in the 80s, it was the 49ers. I mean, they were really good and they were the marquee franchise. But that, the groundwork for that was laid during this period, really beginning with this 87 and 89 uh, championship seasons where they win the division both years and the pennant one year, where people are beginning to think, you know, the Giants aren't a joke anymore. And I would say that from periodically from 75 to about 85, they were a joke. They were a laughing stock. Never again since then. And a lot of that has to do with bringing in Al Rosen. A lot of that has to do with Will Clark, who I think had a really brought a different approach to the game than a lot of the players the Giants had before then. So that's, that's part of it, too. And then ultimately, you know, the new ballpark. But the, the history of the new ballpark downtown now 
is important, has related to this era because in 1989, two weeks after this earthquake we just talked about, two weeks or so, after this earthquake, there was a ballot initiative which narrowly failed. It didn't pass, but the initiative was to build a ballpark essentially more or less exactly where the current ballpark is. Oracle Park. Yeah, so the idea for that ballpark begins in this period, and it takes, you know, 15 years to get it built, but eventually it gets built. It's the best ballpark in baseball, and it's a real anchor for the Giants and the city and for the city in general now. Oracle Park is a fantastic ballpark. Do you have any feelings that, you know, Candlestick is still kind of resonating in your imagination? Well, yes. I mean, you know, Candlestick isn't there anymore. Um, it's been it's been torn down. And there, I think for any baseball fan, there is always a special connection to your childhood ballpark. And Candlestick Park was my childhood ballpark. And anybody can go to Oracle Park and have a good time. Anybody can go, if you can afford it, can go to Oracle Park and watch a Giants game. You know, there's all these buses that go there from everywhere. There's free valet parking for your bicycle. I mean, you know, you can... You can go out in Bay Voyager or some other company will take you out behind and, you know, you can sit in McCovey Cove and hope someone hits a home run. But to sit through a night game, not one night game, but 20, 30 night games a year for a decade, like that, you bond with a place. And, and for me, when if you say ballpark, like if you wake me in the middle of the night and say, okay, what ballpark? Wake me up in the middle of the night and say, okay, you're in a major league ballpark. Where are you? It's Candlestick Park. Wow. Wow. And you got the quaff of the I, candlestick part. I got several quad the candlestick. I used to have four or five on my hat. I still have one, which is now on my, uh, looks like on my bulletin board over my desk at home, so I look at it all the time. And I had this on this old Giants cap from, you know, cap day circa 1982 or something. And during the 2014 World Series, the Giants were playing the Royals, and... I, it wasn't game five, but it was, it was game seven. It was one of the games I was watching with my mother in New York. She just comes to New York to visit. And we're watching the game, and the Giants are losing. Or it's a close game. And I say, oh, I'll get my lucky Giants hat. And I go get the one with the quad candlestick. And immediately something bad happens to the Giants on the field. And my mother says to me, get rid of that hat. <laughs> you got to send us a picture of that hat. I'll okay. send you a picture of the quad. Of the quad. That would be great. This is Bar Crawl Radio, and we're recording inside the Five Napkins Bar, just off Broadway. We want to thank Corey Bush, former executive vice president of the Giants baseball team, and Lincoln Mitchell, who is pitching his newest book, The Giants and Their City. Lincoln, where would you recommend we purchase your book? Well, you can purchase the book anywhere online that you that you can. It is uh, published by Kent State University Press. You can buy it directly from them. You can go to, what is it, bookshops.org. I forget what the exact website you is told, You told me to buy it in the San Francisco bookshop. You can buy it at Green Apple Books. You can buy it at Powell's Books. I think if you're in San Francisco, it's probably in a few brick-and-mortar places. But wherever you buy books online, you can get this book or buy it directly from Kent State University Press. And you're going to sign, uh, we have two of them, you're going to sign one book for our son, yes. who's a big Yankees fan but knows everything about baseball. Uh, Corey Bush, thank you so much for joining us. It's uh, so great meeting you and hearing the real live stories of the San Francisco Giants of that period. Well, thank you very much for having me. I, I never tire of talking about those days. They were wonderful. Thank you, Lincoln Mitchell, for, for joining us. Um, this is Barcore Radio, as, as we said, usually record inside our neighborhood bars. Uh, right now, our home base is Gephardt's Beer Culture Bar on West 72nd Street, but it's closed. And we uh, send out a uh, good luck to Matt Gephardt 
hope they'll be opening up their business soon. In fact, the first time we were together, Lincoln, uh, we were talking at Gephardt's Beer Culture Bar. You can contact Rebecca McKean or myself, Alan Winston, at barkmoreradio at gmail.com and keep pitching over the plate. Thank you. Thank you for having me again. It was a delight. It was wonderful. We had a good time. Thank you, Corey. Thank you. Great. Enjoy the rest of the evening in the bar. Thank you.